So uh, there are a couple things. Sarah mentioned Lent. Um, a couple things I want to mention about Lent. Uh, we, we, Sarah mentioned that at VelocityChurch.info, we've got some things for you to, to be able to kind of go along with that. And, you know, we don't typically as a church necessarily follow a church liturgical calendar. And some of you I know have different experiences with Lent in your, in your faith tradition background, that kind of thing. But, you know, it's just an opportunity for us to focus in on God as we move toward the resurrection. And I just want to let you know a couple things that people have kind of sent in and how they're going to fast and what they're, uh, what they're going to pray about as, as they're fasting in those times. So just to give you kind of an idea of what some of your uh, fellow uh, Christ followers are, are doing during this time. So one person said in that they're going to replace music or podcasts on their drives or workouts or those kinds of things with memorizing scripture. And uh, while they're doing that, they're going to be praying for personal and church-wide growth. Another person sent in that said they're going to fast from unnecessary purchases and evening television. And they're going to pray for growth in how they live and share the gospel. And then uh, one, uh, one other that I want to share, uh, somebody uh, said, I'm going to fast from one meal a day, no, no dinner. And what I'm going to pray is, that for, is for spiritual health and growth for all the folks at Velocity. And so I just want to let you know, hey, there are different things that we can do and participate and share in those times. And it just gives us an opportunity to focus in on those things that maybe the Holy Spirit is moving uh, in our life, you know, to get us to, to think about and, and, and focus on. I, we were talking about it in our small group, and, and I won't call them out, but, you know, one, uh, one couple said, hey, we're going to fast from Chick-fil-A during this time. And I said, I said, I'm going to join you. I said, I'm, that is an amazing fast, and, and from now till Easter, every single Sunday, I'm not going to eat Chick-fil-A. So if you want to, if, you, if you're not sure about what you want to fast from, you can join me on Sundays and fast from Chick-fil-A, and we will do that together, and, uh, and I'm sure God will bless that. Um, I found myself disagreeing a lot lately. Do you ever have? Do you ever have seasons like that? I don't, I don't like using the word season. I'm not sure why I, I just use that. That's such a a, a weird churchy word uh, sometimes. But do you ever ever have times in your life where you, you just find yourself disagreeing a lot? I mean, there's situations that pop up, things that people say. You're just kind of in a in a mood of disagreeing. That's kind of where I have found myself for the last few weeks. Not for any particular one thing, but just multiple things that have just popped up. And I know some of you, I can't imagine ever disagreeing with anybody because some of you, you're. You know, your, your personalities and stuff are just so agreeable. But I have to work on, on, uh, on not being uh, disagreeable. And, and some of you, I mean, may be shocked because you're like, Rob, disagreeable. Um, Renee can, you know, you can ask her any questions you want after the service. You know, nothing, nothing to hide here, right? Do you want to come up and, and, and share your thoughts right now? What's going through your head right now? I'd rather you not. Um, you disagree. Yeah. Um, I, I know that that's a struggle and temptation for me to not be disagreeable. Sometimes I let it slip out and I have to work harder than I want to when that is the case. But here's the thing. <laughs> Please don't say anything. Um, <laughs> I don't actually like disagreeing with anyone. It's, it, it really is true. I don't. Now, now, listen, I don't have any problem with arguing. I mean, discussing. I meant, I meant to say discussing. I don't, I, don't, I don't mind getting into a discussion. But I don't actually like disagreeing. The world would be, be a much better place if everybody thought like I did and lived like I did, and it wouldn't be a problem, right? I mean, I, some of you may, maybe you know, can appreciate that. Um, the most important thing I know I need to do, though, in those moments is I need to kind of pause, I need to stop, I need to process, I need to think. Because even if my response is going to be correct, and it always is, uh, <laughs> Is this, it's getting bad, isn't it? Um, hey, watch your mouth. 
it's okay, it's my son, I, I can talk to him that way. Um, that even, even if I am correct, but I say it and, and, and do it and approach it in the wrong way, that, um, that delivery is going to overshadow the value of my rightness. Especially if you think about the massive communication shift that we have gone through over the last several decades, really, at this point, that we're navigating today, when our thoughts can be shared just as quickly as we can type or just as quickly as our thumbs can move, and we can develop whole narratives out of a mere sentence or two, it's more important than ever that, we, that when we do, it's, it's thoughtfully and conversationally when we respond or when we disagree or we're getting into those types of discussions. As best we can in that situation, we need to be thoughtful in our responses. The best thing you can do is not be a first draft disagreer. First draft disagreer, disagreer. In other words, it's that first response, the very first thing that you want to say, the very first thing that you type out. That, don't ever send that. Don't, don't ever, ever shoot that out. So when somebody sends you an email and you're about to disagree and you write that three-page diatribe, you know, about how the other person is horrible and all the mistakes that they made and all that kind of stuff, that's the thing that you know, okay, good. Like, get it out of your system. That's great. Like, go through that. It can be very cathartic. Go ahead and do that. Write out that, that email or write out that letter or shoot off that text. Uh, don't shoot it off or write out that text, but immediately delete it. Like, get, get rid of it because that initial reaction, you need to process that through. You need to think about how you're saying it, how well you're communicating. Um, you, you really just need to delete it and then go through the process of rewriting it, and it's going to be much shorter and it's going to be much wiser. And um, it's, it's going <laughs> it's to cause a lot less problems when we do that. Because most of the time when we get into those moments, that disagreement, the thing that we have to work through and push through is ourselves. Most of the time, our default is to be really selfish about how we're thinking about the thing and the reaction that we want to give to the other person. And it, it, creates, it creates problems when that is, is the case. We need to take the opportunity to evaluate what the other person has to say and discern what we might need to take to heart or prune and how best to respond. Here's why I bring all this up. We're going through the final minor prophet in the Old Testament, and this is the book of Malachi. And the book of Malachi is uh, four chapters long. Uh, in the Hebrew Bible, it's actually only three chapters. It's very short. It's a brief, it's a brief read. And yet the whole structure of this book is a conversation, a dialogue, a disagreement, a question and answer session between God and between his people. And as you read through it, the reason that this is so important and so timely for us is it gives us an insight, a glimpse into how our brains work, how we tend to process things, how we tend to respond to God when we're selfish and we're not really thinking about things from his perspective, and what we can do to correct that and kind of self-evaluate, process, kind of step back and think about things, not just from our perspective, from how God is thinking, thinking about things. So when we get to the prophet Malachi, we're, we're decades beyond what has happened in Haggai and Zechariah. So almost up to 100 years from, from this time, time period. And so things are, the Israelites are living under the Persian Empire. They haven't established the glorious kingdom that they were hoping to, that they were really hoping that God was going to make, because he's really talking about a different kingdom that he wants to establish in their hearts and minds. And things just weren't going the way that they wanted them to go. And so God starts a conversation with them, and he says, hey, there, there might be a reason why things aren't going the way that you want, want it to. And it has a lot to do with how you're responding to life and how you're living out the life that I've called you to live. And there's an ending that we get to at the end of the book that might seem unexpected, but it's such a good example for how we process the word of God in our lives.
What's amazing to me about this dialogue is that God actually allows his people to disagree with him and engage in conversation. And the reason I say that is it's always funny to me that sometimes we have this internal, and sometimes it's very external, expectation that, that God should think whatever we think. <laughs> that things would be a lot easier, right, if, if God would just kind of get on board and, and, and believe what we believe instead of him kind of having all these other ideas about how life should be and what we should do in life. What, what's up with that? What's, what's happening? And it's always, it's always interesting to me that, you know, we think, oh, well, God definitely, he would, he would believe the same thing we do, or he would fit in with my same point of view or line of reasoning and perspective on life should be. At some point, if we believe that God is God, and I'm not talking about for people who don't believe that God is God, but if we believe that God is God, there will be a time that what we, want, what we want won't measure up to what's best. And our reaction to that is going to play a large part in how we experience God and how much we are with him and how much we engage him. So as we go through Malachi, and really, I, we're not going through the whole thing, so I encourage you to read Malachi on your own time. You'll see a pattern of, of God making a claim, a disagreement from the people, and the response that God gives to address the action that he's taken or is taking. Um, <clears throat> and so as we weave through this cosmic Q&A, we're going to see some really practical responses in our lives and, and some of our, our deepest questions and needs as human beings. The first disagreement is a classic. In Malachi chapter 1, God makes the statement, I love you. I have loved you. And the people respond to him, I just think, I just think about, you know, a child responding to their parent, you know, when, when something's not happening the way they want. They're like, how have you loved us? You know, the child kind of storms off, slams the door and says, if you don't love me, you know, those, those kinds of things. And if you haven't experienced that as a parent, trust me, you did it as a child at, at, some, at some point in, in, in some way. And God reminds them in Malachi chapter 1, verse 2, God says, I have loved you, says the Lord, but you ask, how have you loved us? And God just starts talking to them just a little bit, just a little glimpse into their history. And he just points out to them, hey, just think about how you guys came to being as my people. I chose you. Out of, out of all the people in the world, I chose Abraham. I chose Isaac. I chose Jacob. I chose you to be my people. Now, how can you respond? How, can, how, have, you, how have you loved us? And, and, and the... The, the, the simple answer that he gives is just, just think, about, think about this in our life, is that God has chosen you. The way that he's responded to our sin, the way that he's responded to our brokenness, the brokenness in the world, is he chose us through sacrificing himself through Jesus. And so when, when we come to these kind of questions, the deepest need that we have, God starts off with this thing, hey, you are, you are deeply loved. You are chosen by God. If you ever feel separated from God or, or distant from him as a follower of Jesus, I mean, keep, keep in mind that God chose you. And his love outlasts whatever comparison or contrast we are making that is causing us to question it. Um, you know, I mentioned earlier that, that parents, you know, we, we probably have experienced our, our kids either acting like that or saying it out loud or, or feeling that, that. Or as a kid ourselves, we probably remember a time where we didn't think our parents cared for us very much. Adults are a little bit different. Um, adults are different not because they don't act the same way, extremely childlike and childish. The only difference between adults and kids, I hope you know this, is our autonomy. Right? It's just how tall we are and how old we are. We often can act in the same ways. And so what adults will do when we feel like we aren't loved, what we do is we kind of hold that back and we say, 
We don't hold it back. What we say is um, we're going to hold ourselves back until that other person proves it to us. Because we have some agency and we have some autonomy and we can survive on our own long enough to kind of be in that, in that posture. And so we'll say, prove it to us. And so sometimes we look at other people and we treat them that way or we treat God that way and, and prove it. And what we mean by that is not the objective things that God continues to do in our life to show us that he loves us and what he has done through Jesus, the people that he puts us in our life, the, the way in which we are taken care of and our needs are provided for us. What we really mean when we say prove it is give me what I want to prove it. If you give me what I want, then I'll believe you. That's not how that works. That's not how love works. And what really happens when we hold that kind of posture towards God or toward other people is that eventually that causes us to be apathetic in the relationship. Because what we've done is we've said, if you don't give me what I want, regardless of whether or not it's good or healthy or right, if you don't give me what I want, then I'm going to distance myself from that relationship. And this is what had happened toward the, to the people of Israel. That's why God starts off with this. Hey, you're, you're loved. Like, well, how? Look at all the ways God has taken care of you and brought you to, to this place. Look at all the things that he, he has done. If we wrote out a timeline of our life, there would be so, with that kind of mindset and thinking, man, how has God provided for our needs? What has he done for my life? There would be so many things on that list, if we're honest about it, that maybe we ignore. And when we do, we're apathetic towards him and our relationship. Um, God gives us a choice, but he is not apathetic to us. He does not leave us alone. He prompts us through his Holy Spirit, and he constantly is there for us and providing for our needs. But the people of Israel had ignored this for too long, and so they had become extremely apathetic in their relationship with him. That perspective of love was not guiding how they were approaching their life or their relationship with God. And you can tell that they had given up on this by the second disagreement. In Malachi chapter 1, verse 6, we read, A son honors his father and a slave his master. If I am a father, where's the honor due me? If I am a master, where's the respect due me? Says the Lord Almighty. It is you priests who show contempt for my name. But you ask, how have we shown contempt for your name? By offering defiled food on my altar. But you ask, how have we defiled you? By saying that the Lord's table is contemptible. When you offer blind animals for sacrifice, is that not wrong? When you sacrifice lame or diseased animals, is that not wrong? Try offering them to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you, says the Lord Almighty? And maybe this sounds a little bit strange because we're not used to a system of sacrifice and, and worshiping God. But this is what's happening. The apathy toward God that people had and how they thought about him and how they thought about whether or not God was engaging with their everyday lives moved into how they were approaching worship. And as you read through the text, it wasn't that the people didn't believe in God, but their apathy had caused them to function like non-believers. What they brought to worship and in worship to God was a very key indicator. The expectation was that what they brought before God would be the best of what God had blessed them with. That the reason that we have the things that we have, the needs that we have provided, is because God has done those things in our life. And so this was the expectation that in that worship, we, we bring what God has blessed us with, not, not the leftovers. This is kind of the problem with Cain and Abel. If, if you know about that story early in Genesis, that Abel brought the best of what he had that God had entrusted him with and worshiped to him. Abel brought some stuff. I got, I, got some, I got some stuff right here. Last minute, you know, God, sorry about that. So I'll, I'll drag that in. My favorite example of this is from my youth ministry days in church. 
It's kind of a running joke back in the day when somebody wanted to donate a couch to the youth group. And some of you might, might know, I have some familiarity with this, but um, as a youth minister, it was always kind of interesting because back, back when I was a youth minister, it was a really new, fun thing to create a youth space. And so, of course, you want, you want couches and you want pillows and here's a ping pong table or, you know, a foosball table. And kids are like, I don't even know what that is anymore. Um, just give me my phone and a couch. I'll be good. Uh, no, I, you know, so, hey, youth couch would be amazing. And so this very well-meaning person in the congregation would come up and say, hey, you know what? I heard you guys might, might want a couch for the youth room. I've got a great couch. I was about to take it to the dump, actually. I thought maybe instead of taking it to the dump, I'd bring it to the church. You know, it's, it's got stains on it, and the, the cat's peed all over it, and uh, it's held together by duct tape. It's in the basement. You know, we haven't used it for years because how terrible it is, but, uh, you know, we won't take it to the dump. We'll deliver it right here. You won't even have to come. come. Actually, most of the time, you had to come get it. Um, it's, it was all the, one of those things like, oh, we're about to trash this. Maybe the church wants it. You know, it's, it's such a, anyway, uh, maybe that's more funny for me uh, in, in the past and my experiences. Some of you are kind of thinking, oh, man, what was that couch that I donated to that church? Uh, the people were bringing the worst of what they had to worship. And the priests were getting called out by God because they were accepting it. And God says, look, you know, you guys are under the Persian Empire. The tribute that you send to the people who are over you politically, you would never, never consider sending this kind of stuff to them because you know that it wouldn't be accepted. And so he's saying what you're giving, given to your political authority, the people who are in power of you in other places, you're giving them better what you're giving me. And, and he's saying, just look, look at the, the practical application of what, what you're doing in your life. That you have become so apathetic in your response to me because you really don't understand how much and how deeply you are loved and how you've been chosen. That you would never bring something so insulting to your, your political superiors, and yet this is what you're bringing to worship your creator. And the people needed this reminder in their apathy that we give our best to God because he's given our best to us. I have chosen you. God said, I've loved you, I've chosen you. And through their actions, the people were not choosing him. This couldn't be more of a relevant cautionary tale for us. As Christians, we're called to think of ourselves as foreigners and exiles where we live, ambassadors of the good news. And it's so important that no matter what authority or power we find ourselves under, uh, that is not what dictates our attitudes toward God, how God has called us to live and how we think about how God is moving and operating and working through our lives. The apathetic worship of the Israelites could be traced to the fact that the glorious physical kingdom that I mentioned earlier that they didn't have, they were hoping to build, had not yet come to be. They were still under the Persian Empire. They did not have an autonomous kingdom political power for themselves. Well, the reason it hadn't been built was a lack of faithful consistency, which we talked about last week. They just weren't living the way that God has called them to live. So, of course, he wasn't blessing them with the things that come through being faithful and obedient. And over the course of time, they'd become so used to life as it came that they just kind of fell into the motions. We just kind of live like everybody else does, and we just kind of go about life the way that we, we, you know, our emotions rise and fall with the news cycle and other things that people are upset or happy about, and we just kind of go about like everybody else does. And what's, what's interesting about this is that Persia was not as severe a power of oppression over the people as ba Babylon was. Persia said, hey, go on back home. That's cool. That's fine. So the physical power over them was not nearly as bad, but the cultural power was even more significant. 
And so the people had gotten so used to just how life in the empire worked that they had forgotten how life in the kingdom of God worked. And so they weren't living it. They weren't. They were living in, in the empire, not in the kingdom of God. And we've seen the interplay of this effect throughout the entirety of church history. When church is relatively comfortable, when, sorry, when culture is relatively comfortable, we tend to adapt the way of Jesus to it rather than faithfully maintain life with God that is countercultural. And this ends up taking away the sufficiency of Jesus Christ as our identity within that culture. Because what happens is, as the years progress, that culture shifts and changes, and we look and we say, oh man, things are so bad now. Things were so much better back in the good old days. And if we could just go back to 50 years ago, 70 years ago, you know, 1950s church, man, things were so good back then. If we, if we could only head back that way. Um, problem is the good old days might not have been all, all that great. Think about some of the cultural things, some of the things that were taught, some of the things that the church participated. I mean, I mean, there's no point in history we could look back and say, man, that, that is when things were perfect. Jesus notwithstanding. But there, there's, no other, there, there's no other point in which we would say, man, that's, that's, when, that's when the kingdom of God was actually happening. Now, the kingdom of God has been, God has been uh, building the kingdom of God throughout this entire time. And nothing is going to change that. Nothing's going to hurt that. Sometimes the way that we imagine the past is, oh, my relationship with God was so great then. Or, oh, I was happier when I had this. Or if only I could go back and redo this. Now that I know what I know now, I could change all these things. It causes us to actually misremember what the past was really like. And it causes us to live apathetic lives in the present, in which we miss out on the hope of the future. Um, I, I want to read, read a quote to you that, that I found to be very significant with, with this idea. And before I do, I just want to establish the context of it. Um, in talking about the Israelites having been enslaved in Egypt for 400 years and getting to Numbers 14 where they're about to go into the land that God had promised, promised them, when they, they saw the work that would have to be done, they said, oh man, I wish we were back in Egypt. So, so that, that's how that kind of thing works, is, oh, man, if we need to establish a leader that would take us back to Egypt because, man, do you guys remember when we were enslaved? That was great! Instead of this land of promise that God is, 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 is giving us right here. That's absurd, right? But we do that kind of stuff all the time when we think the past is better than the future that God wants to build and that calls us to partner with him. Rabbi David Foreman says, um, it, with, with that context in mind, the temptation, he points out the temptation that we often face that causes us to lose hope and to become apathetic in our worship to God. He says, do we imagine new tomorrows or do we lie to ourselves about a better past? The Israelites had lost hope. They'd become apathetic because they didn't get what they wanted. <laughs> After failing to humble themselves to God's will and it led to their apathetic response to how God had called them to be. And God still says to them, hey, I haven't forgotten my promises and they're still available and I still want to give them to you. And the same thing is true for us. But when we live like the past was better, and we kind of live like everybody else does, who, who kind of goes, goes based on the, the to, is tossed by the wind and waves of, of the culture around us that, oh, if we only could go backwards, this thing, you know, accomplish this, these things. We tend to live selfishly in the present. And that's what apathy toward God causes, is self-centered, selfish living. 
As you keep reading through Malachi, you see familiar habits and sinful perspectives that had become pervasive in the lives of Israelites. We're not going to go through all these, but hopefully you read through Malachi and you see this pattern, this dialogue. You know, God calls them out for their idol worship. God calls them out for men who are treating their wives with contempt. They're divorcing them for no reason. They're just kind of putting them to side, treating them like they own them. Um, he, there's complaints about justice, despite God continuing to punish evil and showing grace for redemption. Um, the, the people believe that those who are corrupt are better off than those who follow God because of the external measures that they use. Well, they're wealthy. So that, that means, you know, they, they did it by cheating and, and by getting there. So that means, that means they're better off. And God has to correct all of these things. All of these things come from a self-centered worldview. I'm not getting what I want, so I'm going to do what I want. Once we discover that that still doesn't get us what, what we want, and selfishness does not accomplish a happier, good life in the present, there's a part of this discussion when God says what it looks like to return to him. So in Malachi chapter 3, starting in verse 6, God says, I, the Lord, do not change. So you, the descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. Ever since the time of your ancestors, you have turned away from my decrees and have not kept them. Return to me, and I'll return to you, says the Lord Almighty. But you ask, how are we to return? Will a mere mortal rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how are we robbing you? In tithes and offerings. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. I will prevent pests from devouring your crops and the vines in your fields and will not drop their fruit before it is ripe, says the Lord Almighty. Then all the nations will call you blessed, for yours will be a delightful land, says the Lord Almighty. Let me say this just really, really clearly. This passage is not saying that if you give 10% of your income to the church from now until, until eternity comes, that you're going to have the happiest, blessed life that you're going to be so prosperous, that things are going to be so amazing for you, and all the promises of God are going to come to you because you do that with your money. That, that, is, that is not the intent of this passage. Now, giving is absolutely a part of a spiritual discipline that God calls us into. It's not just about, um, some, sometimes the way that we, we talk about offering is we want to encourage people with the things that God is doing through that. that that's great. It is an act of obedience Absolutely that we are called into, and we should participate in that 100%. But the point of this is not to say, man, you, you give your money, and you give the right percentage, and man, things are going to be amazing for you. You just wait. What God is saying is that when we give of ourselves to him, including our money, including our time, including our resources, when, when we give those things to him, and we are partnering with him in what he is doing, that is, what, that is what brings us into the type of relationship that he desires with us. That, that 10%, honestly, to, that's, that's not enough. God's not saying, here's the number. Here, here's the, here, like, as long as you give me this, you know, uh, this 10% of your life, you know, 10% of your time, 10% of your material possessions, 10% of your ability, those kinds of things. No, no. He's saying, God's saying, you're withholding. Your apathy and your selfishness is you're withholding the things that I have given you in this life that I have blessed you with. And God, to be honest, he's not satisfied with 10%. God's looking for 100%. I have loved you. I've chosen you. 
I've given all of my best for you. How could we respond with anything less than with our best to him? God wants us to be generous in building his kingdom with him. And it's generosity, that practice of generosity, that spiritual discipline of generosity that moves us out of that selfishness, that causes us to not be apathetic anymore. It causes us to partner with God in the life that he has always promised that he wants to have with us and that he wants to share with us. You know, after, after all of this, um, some one of the surprising ending to me is that as God says, hey, <laughs> time and time again, time and time again, you've rejected me. Time and time again, you've become apathetic in our relationship together. Time and time again, you've been selfish. And yet I still come and I still return to you. Return to me and I'll return to you. There's a people, part of the faithful remnant of the people hear this, hear this message from from Malachi, this cosmic Q&A, and they repent and they respond. And they mark the occasion with a scroll. In Malachi chapter 3, verse 16, this is the response of, of, of the people. Then those who feared the Lord talked with each other, and the Lord listened and heard. They were disagreeing at the, at the beginning, but then they stopped and thought, and they processed, and they evaluated. And a scroll of remembrance was written in his presence concerning those who feared the Lord and honored his name. On the day when I act, says the Lord Almighty, there will be, they will be my treasured possession. I will spare them, just as a father has compassion and spares his son who serves him. And you will again see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between those who serve God and those who do not. Um, there's this thing mentioned in Scripture, Old Testament, New Testament, called the Book of Life. And what the Book of Life represents are all of those who have responded to God, and God has written them in, who's marked the occasion in the scroll, if you will, about that commitment that has been made in that relationship. And what that commitment looks like is the recognition that God has given everything of himself to us. Wholly undeserving. Uh, we, we are wholly undeserving of that. There's nothing that we have done to earn, earn that from him, and yet that is what he extends to us. And what God asks us to do is simply respond and partner with him in that, is, is to be a part of that and to accept that gift that he calls us into. And, and we are his treasured possession as a result. I mean, that, that's the thing that God really, really is looking for, is, is us. It's not what we're able to accomplish. It's not what we're able to bring to the, the table. It's not how amazing we are. It's not how the incredible things that we did for the past week. It's, it's just us that he desires to be in relationship with. These people, they believed God at the end of this disagreement and the discussion. And they became partners with God. They were serving in a frustrated nation or culture that had lost its hope. They took a stand, though, and said, we're not going to be tossed by the winds and the waves of the culture around us. We're going to hold on to the hope that God has established and makes to happen in our lives. And we move from the apathy that leads to, self- to selfishness back to a full life with God by living out a generous spirit that recognizes that the promises of God for a future hope gives us a purpose to live a better present. Like I said, this happens by living out a generous life as a response to the apathy and selfishness that we see among so many other people around us. That regardless of what might be happening 
Around us, we find satisfaction and contentment in being about what God is about. Because what's really happening in our lives when we don't, when we don't participate, is that when we aren't participating, we're disagreeing with God. We're, we're saying, I, God, yeah, I've I got different ideas of how life should be. I've got a different point of view. I've got a different way of thinking. I've got a different line of reasoning. And God says, you know, okay, I understand that. But I have some thoughts about that. I've got some answers about that. And life that I've called, called you to, at some point you've got to trust me. It is going to be better than any other life that you are called to or that you are tempted by or any other thing that you feel like might be important. And so when we read these Old Testament prophets, there's 12, you know, the 12 of the minor prophets, there's even more. It, it's, you know, the, the, what they're teaching us and what's happening in the people, they're not distant. They're not these things in the past that happened with other people. It's, it's things that we, we get caught up in all the time. And so I just want to encourage you, if you find yourself kind of apathetic in your relationship with God, if you find yourself in a place where you can kind of step back and evaluate and say, maybe I'm being a little bit selfish <laughs> with, with, uh, with what God has blessed, blessed me with, um, allowing the Holy Spirit to draw you into generosity and how you treat one another, um, how you participate in the church, how you live among your neighbors in the world and your enemies as well, um, that, that's what brings us into agreement with what God has to say. That's what um, allows us to participate in the covenant that he establishes with us through Jesus. Every week at Velocity, we celebrate that covenant by taking communion together. In Malachi chapter 4, um, God says, hey, I'm, I'm going to be sending Elijah again to you, and he's going he's to herald the coming of this, this new kingdom. He's talking about John the Baptist, who's coming 400 years later after Malachi writes in, in Matthew. So Malachi is the last book in, in your Old Testament. It goes right, in, right into Matthew. There's a 400-year gap. He says, hey, John the Baptist is coming. He's going to herald this new kingdom, and Jesus is the one who comes. Um, at, at communion, we celebrate the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And we celebrate the fact that God, God is coming again, that Jesus is coming again. We have that future hope, and it causes us to live a, a better present as a result of that. So as we share in this time of communion together, man, I just, I just ask that you um, stop and pause and agree with God in this moment. Uh, let's pray together. God, we uh, thank you for uh, this time of worship uh, where we kind of, kind of separate ourselves away from uh, the, the culture and the responsibilities and things that we have that, that constantly surround us and call for our attention and, and just stop and consider through your word um, who you've called us to be and what that looks like and how that plays out into our life and, and how it affects our hearts and our minds. God, we praise you for a, a different way of living uh, that enables us to um, be, uh, be focused on, on your hope, that we know that there, there's a better tomorrow uh, coming because of who you are and what you continue to do. Uh, we praise you for that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.